when, when I started HFR, the Black community was spending $22 billion a year in apparel. McKinsey and company did a report that said by the year 2030, that number is going up to $70 billion. That's a lot of revenue (laughs) that is up for grabs. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm super excited to share the stories of two incredibly talented women who in their own way and through their own experiences and perspective are helping to change and evolve and frankly improve the way we do business. First, we'll hear from founder and CEO of Harlem's Fashion Row and Icon 360, Brandis Daniel. I started going down department stores websites and realized that at the time, less than 1% of designers that were carried on department store websites were black designers. I didn't feel qualified to provide a solution because I didn't feel like I had the answers, but I knew that I couldn't leave that challenge unaddressed. After that, you'll hear from our new president of stores here at Nordstrom, Fania Chandler. The title's great. And of course, I feel a sense of accomplishment. But to me, it's a bit more of, yes, and I really, really love this company. And I just want us to win. Okay, so a little background. So we know each other a little bit. Brandis is the founder and the CEO of Harlem's Fashion Row, and she's also the founder of Icon 360. Now, both of these entities, Nordstrom has been engaged with at a a certain level, and that's how we've met each other over the years. Um, Brandis, thanks so much for being on the podcast this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Pete. So, Brandis, I think probably the best thing we can do is give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your background. And I know you started the Harlem's Fashion Row thing, and like, I think it was in 2007. So I, I'm pretty curious about all the things that brought you up to that moment where you started something and your motivation to start that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, you know, from the South, worked at Catherine's, which is a plus size women's store owned by Charming Shops. Okay. And yeah, and I worked there as a um, first I worked in allocations and then I moved into buying and the people that we were buying from all of our vendors were actually based in New York City. Uh, one of those vendors was International Intimates and they offered me a job. I wanted to move to New York anyway, and they offered me a job. They had just broken a really big account with a new retailer And so I decided to move to New York and then I worked in production, which is a very, very different side of the fashion business than like a buy-in office. Production is so unglamorous, but that gave me a lot of experience. I got a chance to travel a lot. I managed all of our business out of Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and China. 
And uh, that gave me a lot of great experience. I had never traveled out of the country before until that job. Wow. So my first time traveling out of the country was my boss saying, hey, we've got a production issue. I need you to go to the factory. And I'm guessing at that point, you've never been to a factory. You didn't know never been about to a sourcing factory. and production really at that point. Never been to a factory. Didn't really understand how it worked. You know, all I knew was like these numbers on the spreadsheet, but actually going there and physically negotiating with the factory owner to produce our product by a certain time at a certain cost. It was a totally different ball game. So I was there for almost two weeks by myself. Wow, um, by yourself. They didn't even send someone with you. <laughs> oh, this company was hard core. <laughs> so yes, for the first time going out the country, I go to Indonesia, I'm by myself, and I have to negotiate our deliveries with this factory. And I could not leave the country until the deliveries were going to be sent on time. I know more than I want to know about how to run a factory <laughs> and production. I, I It was a, a boot camp on apparel production for me. Okay, so you came back. You, in, and how long did you do this job before you moved on to something else? So I did this job for five years. While I was there, three of those years, I was also doing Harlem's Fashion Row because oh. I had gone to a fashion show in Brooklyn. And at the time I was living in Harlem and friends and I were already, we were doing this thing where we were really building community in Harlem. So we were doing house parties at our brownstone where two or 300 people would show up, young professionals. I was hosting Harlem brunches at different restaurants. And there was like all of this creativity that was happening in Harlem. There were all these new businesses that were popping up and it was such an exciting time to be there. And so my friends and I were saying like, how do we like really leverage this community and bring this community together? And so when I went to a fashion show in Brooklyn in 2007, I was thinking, you know what? We ha haven't seen anything like that in Harlem. I think I want to do this. I think I want to do a really great fashion event in Harlem. And so I started planning it. But what happened was as I was planning that first event, I was like writing down all my thoughts and my vision. And as I'm writing down these thoughts and these visions that I'm getting, it's much bigger than Harlem. Matter of fact, I still have that notebook. I look through it every now and again to see like, what were my ideas back in 2007? But those ideas kept getting bigger and bigger that I was writing out. I just didn't know what it was gonna be. It wasn't until I started working on the second show when I was looking specifically for black designers, I couldn't really find them. And I started going down department stores websites and realized that at the time, less than 1% of designers that were carried on department store websites were black designers. And that for me was like, that was my aha moment. That was the moment where I said, well, how much does this community spend? And in 2007, it was $22 billion a year on apparel. And so when you say and this I, community, you're talking about across the United States? Is that? Yeah, I was just looking at, at African-Americans in the United States. How much did they spend on apparel? Mm -hmm. And it was $22 billion. That was in 2007. You know, I always say like, I feel like sometimes we're like looking for our purpose and we're trying to figure out what are we supposed to do with our lives. I really feel like that particular problem found me and I didn't feel qualified 
to provide a solution because I didn't feel like I had the answers, but I knew that I couldn't leave that challenge unaddressed. I saw this huge disparity that existed in terms of opportunities for designers of color. And, and honestly, the same thing existed for Latinx designers. And so we work with both black and Latinx designers. And I wanted to get to the root of the problem. Like my thing, I went down a whole rabbit hole in terms of how did we get here? Has it always been like that? I felt like when I started HFR in 2007, we were in this regression where no one was talking about black designers and how do we support them and how do we give them a platform and how do we get them in more retailers? Nobody wanted to discuss it, Pete. And I'm when I say nobody wanted to discuss it, the industry didn't want to talk about it and black designers didn't want to talk about it either because they were so afraid of coming out as a designer of color. They thought people wouldn't support them. And so when we started HFR, it was at a very complicated time in this industry. It was probably one of the worst times to start this company. And, and I always knew it's not that there's a lack of talent, right? There's just a lack of access and opportunity, but I really dug into that too. And that's part of like, I remember I reached out to Stephen Cole, the CEO of the CFDA, and I cold emailed him and I said, hey, designers need to hear from you, designers of color. And he came to Harlem, to the Schomburg and had a conversation with the audience of almost like 200 designers. Those were some of the things I was doing in the beginning to say, how do we bridge the gap? How do we create this communication and a way for designers to actually have access to the mainstream fashion and retail industry? So once you identified there was this opportunity, did you also feel like there is a systemic bias in the process and system that was, you know, keeping this opportunity down in a way? Yeah. I mean, the first systemic challenge is when you looked at the fashion schools like FIT and Parsons and SCAD, the enrollment of black students in their design program was at that point probably less than 3%. You know, when you think about it, this industry is predicated on relationships. And I always say fashion is like a small town, right? You know, this one, they introduce you to this person. You get introduced in this room to this buyer. There just weren't a lot of opportunities for designers of color to really be in those types of rooms. And then, of course, there is the funding piece of it, which it costs money to be able to be carried in a department store. It's not, you have to be prepared to support marketing. You have to be prepared, you know, if you've got chargebacks or if the buyer needs markdown money, all of those things you have to be prepared for. And so a lot of designers just didn't have the infrastructure to really prepare them for that. Yeah, maybe you can speak to that point a little bit because, you know, as you might imagine from where we sit, if you're a confident and ambitious designer out there, they reach out to us and say, we've got a line, we've got a thing we're doing, we want to sell to you. And, you know, typically my response is, well, that sounds great. I mean, we're always open to see what's out there, but are you set up to actually do business with a department store? I mean, to your point, there's there's money, but there's a whole infrastructure and logistics that have to go with that, right? You want to sell Nordstrom? What, what if 
we need to put it in 93 stores and light it up online and do all this stuff. You know, could you fill an order for, you know, 50,000 units or whatever in, in a month? And then usually it's like, no, I mean, I, I need help for that. So tell me about how that works for you. Are you, are you trying to create, you know, a process or some support network so that you can enable these businesses actually to become businesses at scale? Yeah. So one of the things that we're doing now in a very kind of small way, I actually, right before uh, we recorded this, this podcast, I had a meeting with like seven designers and we were talking through their business and they were sharing contacts and factory contacts and what's working for them and what's not. So that is a small part of what we do, but a larger part of what we do is collaborations with brands and retailers because what that does is it allows for the retailer to win for and for the designer to win. Um, the designer is given the opportunity to get a fee upfront to design. Then they also have the opportunity to get royalty on the back end of the deal. But then in terms of the production, the retailer handles the production, right? And what happens is the designer just actually gets an opportunity to just design. Uh, and then the retailer wins. We just had a collaboration and, you know, they had a 10x return in two months. The retailer side, they get a chance to take an take advantage of this opportunity of all these consumers who want to buy from these designers at an approachable price point. Well, I think that brings us to the point, like, you know, how we know each other, because that that's exactly how this is coming together. So it was probably, I don't know, two or three years ago where Jennifer Jackson Brown was um, in charge of MPG here at Nordstrom. And she came to me and she said, you know, I, I met these folks at Harlem's Fashion Row. And I I think there's, you know, a program we, we should work on with them to have their designers work with our team and in, in the Nordstrom product group. But then, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, let's do it. Then actually making that happen. And it took what, two years for that? It took two so, years, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that process? I mean, this stuff takes time. First of all, Pete, this, this is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I, I love this entire process. And by the way, thank you. Having you come down and review the designer's collection and them being able to meet you was such a treat for us. Well, it was fun for me too. I mean, you know, that's actually what our business is, is connecting people to to stuff they might want to buy that they don't know about. And for me to be able to see the genesis of how that was working together and actually also the enthusiasm from our team, being able to collaborate with your team, it felt it felt great. So that was fun for me to spend a little time and meet these folks and get to see what they're working on. So anyway, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. No, it, it, was, it was so great. We were so thrilled that you had come down. You know, this this is one of my favorite things to do. First of all, I love retail. I grew up in retail. So I've been working retail since I was 16 years old. So it is just a business that I absolutely love. I was always one of the top salespeople because I love it. I and believe so that. You, you, I'm sure you were a good salesperson. Yeah, <laughs> I was a good salesperson. And so when I think about like being able to take Nordstrom, which is one of my favorite stores, whose values totally line up with our values, and then thinking about who are the right designers to bring into the Nordstrom environment to be able to serve their customers well, and who are the designers that we think that can bring something to the Nordstrom customer that they don't currently have? Yeah, and I think the way we're looking at it, that that's all true, but I think we're also looking at it that there's a even a much bigger opportunity in that you can get black creatives and designers 
an opportunity and you can sell to the entire universe, diverse universe of consumers in the U.S., which is even much, much bigger than that. It's not just black people designing for black people. It's black people designing for customers. And, Absolutely. And that's, you know, really uh, a big part of our approach is looking at this as broadly as we can. And I think the other piece of it, Pete, that retailers had a challenge with was, do we tell our customers that these are black founded brands? Right. I, I remember you all were probably carrying more black designers than anyone um, in like 2022, if I'm not mistaken. That's when I was looking through through the retailers' websites. And I emailed Nordstrom's and said, hey, you guys are carrying so many black designers, but you're not telling anyone. Right. And people want to know. And now what I love is I have a really good friend. Um, she's the president of this cultural agency based out of Canada. And she shops Nordstrom every week. And she said, Brandis, the thing that I love is that now I can shop and say, buy Black Founded. She was like, so I start there and see if there's anything that you know I can buy from them. And then if not, I go to the other things. So I love that you guys have said, we're gonna actually make it easy for someone who wants to support this group of designers. We're gonna make it easy for them to do that. I am, when I tell you, I feel like storytelling, that is the answer. When people say, well, how do we make this collaboration? Like really, you know, how do we beat all expectations? I'm like, great, great storytelling. Because it doesn't matter human to human. It doesn't matter if you're what what race you are, right. where you're from. We connect on our stories. Now, I don't, honestly don't know this. Is Harlem's Fashion Row, is it a not-for-profit or is it a for-profit business? It's for-profit. And our, our non-profit is Icon 360, which we started in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Okay, so let's talk about it. Icon 360, that's a nice transition because I was going to ask you about that anyway. Talk a little bit about the mission of Icon 360. So in 2020, when the world shut down, I was hearing designers say, Brandis, I don't know if I can keep my doors open. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. Like, and, and these were designers who were at the top of their game. And at the top of the year, Top of 2020, I had written that I'm going to start a nonprofit in this decade. Now, I originally thought that Harlem's Fashion Row was going to be a nonprofit, but I worked with the business coach who said, Brandis, we have enough nonprofits. We need profitable businesses in our community. And once you have a profitable business, then you can start a nonprofit. <laughs> Good advice. That was, that was my approach, right? Because of him. I said, okay, I'm gonna start in this decade. But as I was getting those phone calls from designers, I said, I have to do something now. And so I said, if I start a nonprofit, we're gonna provide funding to HBCU fashion departments, which we had been working with those departments for years, but we had never been able to give them any financial contributions. And we're gonna to work to provide funding to black designers. Well, we did a virtual event to launch the nonprofit. Um, we had support from a few brands for that virtual event. We had a thousand people sign up and pay, I think it was $25 to be a part of this virtual event. So we were able to raise about $25,000 for that event. We had editors from every magazine you could think of, every stylist, every influencer, everyone was willing to chip in to help launch this nonprofit. And when we launched it, I don't, I've never told this story publicly, Pete, but I knew that when we launched this nonprofit, we were going to get a million dollars. I knew that like, 
I, I don't know if you've ever had just a knowing, but I knew it and I didn't know where it was going to come from. And so after we did the virtual launch event, I looked at my phone one day and it was Stephen Cope, who's the CEO of the CFDA calling me. And it was right maybe a week or two after the murder of George Floyd. And he was really checking on me, um, checking on me and, and checking on my daughter. And we had a really great conversation. And he said, Brand, as you know, we've transferred all of our Vogue fashion fund to this new fund to help designers during the pandemic. And he said, we have additional funding left over. And I said, oh, that sounds great. He said, it's a million dollars. And we really? like to donate it to Icon 360. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so the CFDA and Vogue donated a million dollars to Icon 360. We, we were barely even, I mean, we were still going through the paperwork. I told him, I said, we don't have our 501c3 yet. We're still going through the pre-sale. Well, if you can get it in another month or so, it's fine. So we were able to give away the entire million dollars to, I believe, 27 designers. That's amazing. And that was our launch. Well, look, I'm not surprised. Steven's a good guy, and um, and I know Anna, too. I mean, they, their, their heart's in the right place, so I'm not surprised that they were a catalyst for you to get that thing going. That's that's I didn't know that story. That's great. And so yes. talk about where you are then now with I Icon 360. So how engaged and involved are you running in running that? So we have someone else running the organization, but we are still involved. We're actually tomorrow, we have a partnership with uh, Paramount Pictures for the Bob Marley One Love movie. They're donating $30,000 to a Caribbean designer. We did a our first ever professor, HBCU professor summit. And that was so special because you know, I felt like in order for us to really empower these departments, we needed to address the professors. We needed to make sure that they knew what retailers were looking for from students when they came into their corporate offices. And so I had a call with the Nordstrom team a few weeks before that event and said, I really need your support. Um, Nordstrom came on in a really big way to that professor summit in terms of a financial donation. Also, we hosted a cocktail hour at the Nordstrom store on 57th Street for all the professors. And that was really special. Um, and so we're hosting our second annual professor summit in June, around Juneteenth. Um, so we're continuing to do that. We're continuing to do donate money. We're on Tapestry. I think they just donated almost $100,000 to Bowie State through Icon 360. And so we're continuing to donate to to the designers as well as to HBCU fashion departments and then giving the professors what they need. It is honestly some of the most meaningful work I've ever done. So it leads me, I'm, I'm curious, like on a personal level, how it makes you feel that you've been able to create, you know, really two things that you're really seeing the fruits of now and it's real. Uh, how's that made you feel? If I think about it too long, I'll be on here sobbing uh, <laughs> with you. It's overwhelming when I think about it. I always say it's hard for me to take a step back and look at the impact. I, I feel like I want to do that on a beach <laughs> um, somewhere, maybe 10 years from now, once I brought in my replacement. And yeah, I think I... I, I it's hard for me to take it in, Pete, because it really is. I am overwhelmed with gratitude 
in terms of the support that we've gotten from retailers and from this industry. I mean, from Anna Wintour putting me in her editor's letter and letting the world know about Icon 360 to having you know a collaboration with Nordstrom, which is a company I wrote my senior paper on in college. Is that right? Yeah, I did. You should send it department. to me. I'd like to read it. Is it good? <laughs> I don't know where it is. <laughs> I wish I had kept it, though. But I wrote a whole paper on Nordstrom and your shoe department and your philosophy. And to be sitting here right now on this podcast with you and to be partnering with you, I, I am living a dream beyond what I had for myself. You're making my day here. It's I, I, I'm loving the inspiration of all this. And so I, I guess it'd be true that you have a sense of optimism about the future, but talk a little bit about where you see this all going. Do you feel like ultimately, you know, there's a lot enough momentum here to create the change that's needed? It is. There is absolutely. I, I am naturally optimistic, but I am so I feel so great about the future. When I think about what's next, we are actually going to consumers. So we've spent the last, we're, we'll be 17 this year, and we've spent really the last 17 years focused on the designer and the industry and building great retail relationships. Um, our next five years is really focused on going to where the consumer is. So you'll see us doing more, hopefully, even with our collaboration with Nordstrom, um, doing more in-store unique experiences for consumers to bring them into the stores. We're going to be building deeper and more meaningful relationships with consumers of all races and all backgrounds who want to shop these designers, you know, and our way of doing that is going to be experiences. You know, that's what we're known for is our New York Fashion Week event. So we'll be bringing those types of experiences to local markets like Atlanta and Houston and Chicago and Dallas. Uh, and so I am incredibly excited about this next phase of HFR where we really make consumers our focus. That all sounds great. Hey, look, it's it's been really nice to talk to you, Brandis. Like I said, we didn't know each other particularly well. We've bumped into each other a few times. and I feel like I kind of know you, though, Pete. I, well, I know. And I'm glad we have this relationship. And I, I think there's a great opportunity for us to partner on all kinds of things uh, in the future. And I, I love your perspective and motivation around things that connect people on an emotional level around discovery of, of what's out there. And um, to the extent you guys can be helpful to us on that, I think it's great. So anyway, so thanks so much for for being on the podcast. And I want to congratulate you for for doing what you do. I mean, you've, you've created something out of nothing and uh, you've certainly made an impact. Oh, but thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do, Pete. Like Nordstrom really is leading the charge in so many areas with this work and with social justice work and and you guys i don't know you just you just do it with so much class so thank you all right 
right, this morning we are taking advantage of the opportunity to do something we like to do here on the Nordy Pod, and that is to shine a light on different aspects of our business. It could be a division, or it could be different leaders that we have here, you know, and we've talked to salespeople as well. So today we are going to talk with Fanya Chandler, who has been recently promoted to president of Nordstrom Stores. So, Fanya, thanks for being on the Nordy Pod. Thanks for having me, Pete. So now Fanya and I know each other pretty well. You've been with Nordstrom for how long now? 32 years. And I feel like I knew you early on. I met you when you were a department manager, probably you, on the East maybe Coast. Maybe department manager. My first clear memory of working with you, I was a buyer. I was a women's active buyer. Okay. And we were in market, in L.A. market for swim. And I'm sure I had some really wise advice you for did. you. You did. You had oh a lot God. of wise advice. <laughs> and I remember being so nervous meeting Pete Nordstrom. And I was really taken aback by how much you knew about the swim market. Like, I didn't expect you to know very much yeah. about the swim market, but you knew it. And so I was, I was pretty impressed. Okay, well, that's good. So, but anyway, I think the point is, while... We've known each other, been in your orbit. I've never actually worked directly with you because you've mostly been out and around the different regions in, in the last you know de- couple of decades. I've been around Seattle. So this has all led to you know, a few months ago, me calling you and offering you the job on the executive team to be the president of the stores. So can you describe a little bit what that job is exactly for everybody? So I had the responsibility of supporting our stores, the service that we deliver, obviously the the bottom line profitability of our store business. But really, most importantly for me, it's the service and experience that we provide our customers and how we show up every day for our customer. Let's put this into context. So we have 93 Nordstrom stores. We have what, four local, six locals? Yeah, six locals. Okay. We need to verify that. So how many employees are we talking about here that you ultimately are supporting? About 45,000. Okay, that's more than half. That's about two thirds of our employee base resides within your area of responsibility. Yes, I'm feeling the pressure on my shoulders. Yep, we're going to remind you of the pressure. And if you think about the way that our brand promise comes to life, it's most often through some experience with a person at Nordstrom or how someone is driven an experience or someone in a physical store. Again, not to say that we don't make those brand impressions online because we do. But what I tend to hear most of is, you know, once I was in the store and this person helped me or once I had this problem, I had to go to a store and did this thing and you guys did this job. So I call it that is this, an enormous responsibility, yeah, as you know. I call know. that the secret sauce, right? It's, it's when customers come in and whether they're, you know, have this intent to buy or they're just coming in to, to look around. We get that often as well. When they connect with a salesperson it can become really magical. I, I always say I love watching a customer when they find the right outfit and they're having fun with their salesperson, especially, and this is mostly women, they tend to stand differently in the mirror when they have these great pair of shoes on. I always laugh because they kind of stick out their butt a little bit. They have this <laughs> pose. It's, it's really darling to watch. And okay. that's when I see the magic happen. Like they feel this sense of confidence that customers feel when they have this great outfit. And they have a salesperson giving them a little bit more of a push and to, to say, yep, you look great. And then it's even better when they go home and uh, show off that outfit to their significant other or their friends. And we get to hear about that later, how it works. So that is our secret sauce at Nordstrom is all the wonderful people that we have that connect with customers. So that's good context for the important role they play here. I think what's uh, really going to be interesting for people is to talk a little bit about your journey. And when I think about 
your ascent in this company and over time what you've earned and the amount of responsibility you have is a classic example of a meritocracy where, you know, you're just paying attention to who's out there and who's doing a good job and you and the promote from within thing happens. So maybe we let's rewind the tape all the way back to when, you know, yeah. before you started, how Nordstrom was on your radar as a place to yeah. even go work in the first place. Yeah. So um I disappointed my dad when I said I wanted to work in the mall for the rest of my life. That wasn't <laughs> How old were you when you told your dad I this? was probably 13 or 14. I, <laughs> I went out, uh, actually my first job, I was uh, 15 and like a couple days from 16 years old. And, uh, and where I, was that? Where I were you was, working? I was working at White Flint Plaza in Maryland and I worked at a store called Ups and Downs and I got the job because I wanted to work in the mall. And honestly, the reason why is because I wanted to buy my, I wanted to have my own phone line in the house. And so the only way I could do that. This is, was pre-cell phone era. This so you is pre-cell phone era. I had to get my own. So anyway, what brought me to Nordstrom is a friend. We were opening the Montgomery Mall store. In Maryland. A, in no, Maryland. Yeah. That's right. In Maryland. And a friend of mine applied and got the job. And she knew how much I loved retail. And you're how old now at this time? At this point, I was 20 years old. Okay. 20 years old. She called and she goes, you should apply at this store. I said, actually, I don't want to work at a department store. And she goes, no, no, no. It's a large specialty retailer. And I'm like, what does that mean? She goes, you're going to love it. It is about service. You you have to you have to come. And so I, I applied. I was one of the last new hires before we opened the store. And uh, I opened the Montgomery store and the, the, the rally before opening was magical to me. Having the opportunity to meet the buyers and meet the executives of the company and a lot of people with the last name Nordstrom, that was did, really did cool. Did I meet you at that store opening? I met you at that store. Uh, Diane Picor was oh the store gosh, manager. Yeah. yeah, and so that was a lot of fun. And so that's where my journey started. Um, from there, I, I took on department manager roles. Uh, I was an assistant buyer. And my first move was to Philadelphia as the buyer manager, moved into store management, was a store manager for about 10 years on the East Coast, different, two different stores. I actually had my, uh, what I call my uh, Nordstrom midlife crisis. I was the Pentagon City store manager. I took a six month leave of absence. You did? I did. My daughter was diagnosed with cancer at the age of three. And so I took a six month leave of absence to care for her. I came back and I lost empathy. And it is impossible to be a successful store manager when you don't have empathy. And at that moment in my life, I just lost it. It was, I could not give any more <laughs> after that. So I went to my regional manager's office and I said, I, I can't do this job anymore. And it was the hardest words that ever came out of my mouth. And she said, okay, I want you to be the stylist director. And I said, don't give me a stupid job. <laughs> and she goes, no, 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 this is a great job. You should do this. It's all about building the stylist program. There's something there about our, our these salespeople, these amazing stylists that build incredible connections to customers and the repeat business they have with these customers. We need more of that in the company. And so we want you to, to do this job. So I took the job. Um, I did that for about seven, eight months. And then Eric called me and asked if I would move to Seattle and be the national stylist director. So I did that and I uh, spent about five years. And in that time, it felt felt a little uh, interesting because every six months I'd go into Eric's office and he'd say, hey, I want to add a little bit more to your plate. I want you to run weddings. 
I want you to start, you That's know, right. all we were of in these the weddings different things. Oh, yeah, they were, were all of these that. different things, and uh, which was great. Um, Jamie actually took on uh, stores and asked me to move to Texas to be the regional manager for the Southwest. And all right, I so there's a theme there. So yeah. is every time in your life you've received a call from a Nordstrom, <laughs> does it mean you have to move? Is that what that's meant? You know, I never thought of it that I way, but that true. is a bit of a theme because uh, I did that. And then I received a call from Eric and asked if I'd go to Chicago to be the president of Trunk Club. And so when I called you. Yeah, you like, were in an unexpected call. You don't I don't get a text from Pete Nordstrom very often. <laughs> and so I get this text and I'm like, what the heck? And so uh, and then, yes, uh, in, in September, you called me. Actually, the announcement was on my birthday. And do you remember now. what you told me when I offered you the job? I don't exactly. I do. Okay. You, <laughs> you said I've been waiting for this call for 30 <laughs> years, I think, is something like that? Yeah. I mean, I, it, you, it is interesting how time flies, but it was, it was a really in, incredible moment, that phone call. Um, because you never are quite sure that that's going to happen. And you, everyone works hard for whatever that thing is, but you're not sure that's going to happen. And so now that it, it did, it's a little, it's a bit surreal, even to this day. And maybe it shouldn't be, but it is to me. I still walk in and my heart beats a little bit when I hit the sixth floor button. You know, it's amazing. So talk a little bit about, again, when you got that call to have this job here, like what, what went through your head and, and really how did it make you feel after, you know, 30 years of slugging it out and doing a bunch of jobs that may not have been super glamorous and whatever we kind of asked you to do along yeah. the way? Well, I think the first thing I said was, oh, shit, I hope I can say a bad word on here. But that's yeah, the that's first okay. thing you I said. said was, oh, my. OK. I don't um, think you said that to me. You no, were like, I didn't. You, that was definitely, so was that was definitely uh, in my my internal thoughts there. I was like, OK, what did I get myself into? Um. And I think it's it's this is it. Like I, I felt very much like okay, now now what? And and how how can I help the company win? You know, I, I to me the title's great, and of course I feel a sense of accomplishment to say that. You know, I'm the president of Nordstrom Stores, and I sit on the executive team. Yes, there is a personal sense of accomplishment, and I often think of my mom and dad and say, okay, they would be super, super proud of me, and I know my kids are, and my husband is. But to me, it's a bit more of, yes, and I really, really love this company. I really, really do, and I just want us to win. And so whatever I can do to help us do that is what I hope my legacy is. So- you obviously had a sense of ambition throughout your time and you, you took on new responsibilities and you, you did well at them. And then you get this call. Talk a little bit about kind of your background, your upbringing and, and, and your schooling and all that stuff and how that puts you in a position where here you are now with this really big job at a big yeah. company. <laughs> you know, I don't I come from a very humble background I would say we were middle class. I think at the moment, I don't know if we, if I felt like we were a middle class family. We were living paycheck to paycheck, and my dad was a dreamer, so most of those paychecks didn't last very long. My mom had an incredible work ethic. She would work, you know, 16, 17, 18 hour days to make ends meet. I, I do believe a lot of my work ethic comes from her. And so, you know, college was not something that was going to be in our cards for our family. I mean, I, I didn't have the wherewithal to think about scholarships and how might I be able to find a way to pay for college. It was more about how might I find a way to 
live <laughs> to pay. And so coming to Nordstrom right out of school, again, I was 20 years old. And so I had other odd jobs in the mall before coming here to Nordstrom. And I was able to be successful. I was a pretty good salesperson. And so the idea of the more you sell, the more you earn. I liked that idea. I was able to get into department management. And what I fell in love with Nordstrom was I was able to grow with the company, get promoted, uh, make a living without necessarily a college degree based on what I was able to deliver and the, and the outcome of my performance. And was and that on your mind in those early it days? It was because I knew I made a choice that was probably not a smart choice to not go to school. At the moment, I didn't see it to be possible. So therefore, it was working. And again, thinking about my mom and how hard she worked and she did well, I thought I could maybe do something. And it just I felt like I found a company that valued my my commitment to finding ways to win. And so therefore, it I I feel like I married Nordstrom at that moment because that was going to be the right choice for me. And and. I have a story that I have to tell you. My dad um, actually went to the store. I was a department manager. And my dad went to our Towson store where I was a department manager. And my dad had polio, so he walked with a limp. And I can see this man from afar walking with a limp. And I'm like, what the heck? Why is my dad here? And he wanted to speak to the store manager. And I was like so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most embarrassing thing that's ever going to happen to me. And my dad sat down with the store manager and she's like, it's going to be okay. And they go to her office. I'm so mortified. And so about, it felt like forever. It probably was only 20 minutes. It felt like six hours. He comes out and has this big smile. My dad had big, big smile. So he leaves and I run over to the store manager to apologize. And she's like, no, he just wants to make sure that you're able to take care of yourself. He doesn't want you to depend on any man. He wants to make sure that this is a career that you can be successful. And so I often think about that and I kind of close my eyes. My dad has long passed, but I think, you know what? I'm successful. You know, I, I've, I've done a good job. Darn right. So as you were going along, you know, applying or for these different jobs, interest in these jobs, did anyone ever ask you about your diploma or your grade point average or something? <laughs> no, you're actually the first. You asked me this question. Did you did uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Maybe we were on a <laughs> you'd plane. Already, you'd already made it all the way. It and, didn't matter. And, you, and I said to you, I said, Pete, you're the first person that ever has asked if I have a college degree. The first person. So it took 30 years. So not yeah, bad. Yeah, you know, I th but we talk about that a lot, which again, I'm proud of because I think it reflects our culture that's really about a meritocracy. Now, I think we all would agree that whatever experiences you can bring yeah. to the job, yeah. it, it could be school, it could yeah. be other work. It's all good. Yep. I'm curious, did that ever make you feel um, insecure at all? about? 100%. It? Okay. Absolutely. Well, then let's talk about that. <laughs> Sure, it makes you feel, in, you know, insecure. It may, maybe not others. It has made me at times feel like, oh, gosh, am I am I smart enough, you know, or whatever across from some of the some of the folks I get to work with. It's OK, I feel that way every day, too. <laughs> My English major is not really uh, doing yeah, it for me well, here when I know, sit in the rooms with these people. What I can say is I know what it's like to be in a store and serving a customer on your knees across from a customer, you know, in the shoe floor or or in a dressing room with a woman who's just, you know, had a baby and her body's completely different. Like, I, I know what that feels like. I, I know how to make a difference in those ways. And so when I think about my role here on the ET is to bring those stories to life of the decisions that we make and how is that going to impact our customer in the store as well as our 
our folks on the sales floor. So on your journey here, at what point did it tip so that it felt like it was a good fit for you personally? It wasn't just a job in the mall that paid decent money, mm-hmm. but it was it connected with you personally and that you saw some example maybe yeah. through people working with like, I want to be yeah. like that person. I, yeah. I think I can do that. Yeah, we were opening um, our store in Atlanta. Please don't ask me the year. I don't remember. But I remember standing kind of towards the back of the room as the there's a moment where, you know, there's a big rally and a bunch of. And the, you're how old at this point? Oh, gosh, 25, okay. maybe, you know, and uh, Delina Sunday, who used to lead HR for Nordstrom many years ago, she got up on stage and she was talking about her journey and to see a black woman up there and so engaging. I was I was blown away by her and I'm standing way in the back of this crowd and after everything was over I start you know to walk away and here she comes towards me and she looks at me dead in the eye and she goes I want to know who you are and I told her my name and she goes great what do you do and she without her knowing it there was such a connection that I had to her and I thought I want to be her one day. And we call that at Nordstrom tying ropes. And how do we connect with people in a way that they want to stay with Nordstrom? And she did that for me in that split second. And in it, she probably would never even remember this, this interaction. Yeah, I'm sure it was in any kind of formal no, or calculated was, decision just, was in the moment. For whatever reason, she walked up to me and she said, I want to get to know you. Tell me about who you are and what you do and tell me about your, your journey at Nordstrom. And she cared. And I think about her in that moment often, especially as I now go into stores, I it's not lost on me that there are other young black women in our stores today that wonder if it's possible to be on the executive team. And so anytime I see someone that has a look in their eye, there's always this look like I'm a little nervous to go up to them or whatever. I try to make it my mission to do the same thing that Delina did for me and just to walk up to those individuals, no matter who they are, where they are, where they're from, and just introduce myself and get to know them. Well, I've seen it firsthand. (laughs) And I spent a lot of time with Delina when she was head of HR and part of our executive team. And both you guys, in your own way, have this amazing quality or like a magnet for that. And you're also willing to seek it out too and engage with people. And it's powerful. But being a black woman in a very high profile situation, do you feel any sense of responsibility or obligation to conduct yourself in a in a different way? I, I think it's a, there is a sense of I think there's a sense of responsibility um, when I go out into stores that representation matters. I actually was in uh, South Florida, got a chance to sit down with Shana, who is our store manager in um, Boca, and sat down with her. And what was so amazing to me is I'm sitting having lunch with a store manager who's a black woman, the regional manager who's a senior vice president as a black woman, and here president of Nordstrom Stores as a black woman. And I, for a moment, paused and thought, I don't, this doesn't happen very often. And we need it to happen more often. And not because of the person being a black woman, because here's a successful woman and we need more successful women in our, sure in our organization. And so that is what that moment uh, at, at lunch was really 
moving to me. And I could tell it was moving to her. So I actually said it. Gosh, look at this. Look at this table. How awesome is that? And how can we do more of that? Yeah. All right. Well, Fanny, you were nice to talk to me today. I know it probably wasn't high on your list of something you wanted to do, <laughs> but I, you were nice when I asked for you to do it. And I think it's it's interesting for people just to learn more about the individuals and the motivations and, you know, and how they're connected to Nordstrom and our mission in a way that goes way beyond a transactional thing, like just a job. But it's it's something more than that. And I would tell you, you know, knowing you as I have for a while, you're a great representation of everything our company's about in terms of the meritocracy part of it and working hard and being promoted from within, you know, having results and all that stuff. And then I think just what you bring to the job because of your own experiences, you know, that makes us better too. And so I appreciate what you're doing. I think you're doing a great job after a good start. And I, I appreciate that you're taking it so seriously. It's great. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with the new athletic director at the University of Washington, Troy Dannon. Part of the problem, we have scoreboards that define success for a lot of people. Gravestones are actually where our success is going to be. You know, I tell our coaches that what you do will be appreciated after you die by the kids that you coached. And they understand that they're in a better place in life because of what you taught them. Join me as I sit down to interview Troy as part of a Nordstrom leadership meeting we recently held for our top executives. Troy shares some fascinating insights and challenges around building and developing athletic programs at the collegiate level. Next time on The Nordy Pod.